you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, please turn with me to James 5, James 5, verse 7 to 12. And we will start reading from verse 1 for context. Listen carefully now to the merciful words of Jesus Christ. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasures in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the salvation that Jesus Christ has purchased for us at the cross. We thank you for the the sure promise of his return. Lord, we ask now that you will encourage our hearts. Lord, we ask that you'll teach us to think with a heavenly mindedness as we await his return. Lord, we ask you to expose the areas that we fail to trust in your word and that you would help us to endure in faith. Lord, open our eyes to behold the wondrous glory of your Son. Save the lost. Warn us and prepare us for that great and awesome day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, what do you do When you find yourself on the wrong end of injustice? Where do you turn to find strength when you are tempted and tried by the hardships of this life? Now, if you're you're like most people, 
you might follow the wisdom of Rancho, the genius engineer who once said, that day I understood that this heart scares easily. You have to trick it, however big the problem is. Tell your heart, pal, all is well, all is well. It doesn't solve the problem, but you gain courage to face it. Though Rancho is a made-up character in the Bollywood movie, The Three Idiots, he embodies what most people do when they face trials. So your boss unjustly blames you and calls you a host of explicitives before lunch? You laugh it off. All is well. All is well. Your salary has been delayed month after month after month. You distract your weary heart. You turn to Facebook or YouTube and say, all is well. All is well. Friends, we live in a world that is broken from the curse of sin, where employees are mistreated, the poor are oppressed, and the weak are abused. We live in a place here where salaries are regularly delayed, end of service is wrongly withheld, and justice is perverted. We live in a world where daughters are locked in their homes and sons are disowned and brothers are maligned because, they are, because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Try as you might, but no amount of tricks, tales, or games can keep you enduring in the suffering of this life. No, friends, all is not well. So the question remains... If we cannot trick our hearts, if all is not well, where do you find true and lasting hope in unthinkable trials? James, in this passage, in chapter 5, reminds us that our hope is found in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He and He alone is our firm foundation. Remember, James has been writing to Christians throughout this letter who have been suffering trials of various kinds. They have fled persecution and now are being oppressed by wealthy landowners. We saw in verse 1 to 6 that they've been cheated out of their daily wages and even some have died. In our passage last week, Pastor Sam showed us that James reminds these weary Christians that the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies in heaven, hears their cries and one day will bring final and everlasting justice. My friends, there's a day coming when Jesus Christ will come again. And when he comes, he will do two things. He will come to rescue his blood-bought people and he will come to condemn his enemies at the final judgment. This, my friends, is the only hope that will sustain you and sustain me through our trials of various kinds. So it is in light of this final day of judgment that James encourages us to endure in the faith. Keep going. In James 5, 7 to 12, he calls us to live in light of the final judgment to come when Christ returns. So we have two points this afternoon. As his beloved saints, we must first patiently wait 
for the coming of Christ. And second, we must be ready for his return. We must patiently wait for the coming of Christ, and we must be ready for his return. Let's now look at that first point. We must patiently wait for his coming. We see this in verse 7 to 8. Look at verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. So here in verse 7, James turns from addressing the rich to encourage those who are being persecuted by the rich. He calls these believers, these brothers and sisters, to endure with patience. Do you see that in the text? Be patient, therefore, brothers. In light of the future judgment of the unbelieving rich, you, brother, you, sister, must be patient. This, my friends, is an imperative. It is a command. It is not optional. So if you are enduring any mistreatment in any way on this earth, you must be patient. The word patient here can mean long-suffering or forbearance. It is an active work of self-denial that willingly suffers and endures the evil of others. I'll say that again. Patience or long-suffering is an active work of self-denial that willingly suffers and endures the evil of others. It is an ongoing refusal to repay evil with evil. This type of patience is a fruit of the Spirit. This type of patience is something that acknowledges that God alone is the final judge. You see, this type of patience acknowledges that every single human being must give an account to God. And this, my friends, is good news for us because we are woefully inept to render right judgment. I don't need to explain the difficulties of receiving justice in this land. But even in countries like the United States, courts often make mistakes. As one study explains, though American justice system is considered one of the best in the world, the justice system fails. For instance, in 2016, 180 people, 180 people, 180 people were exonerated of crimes they didn't commit. So they were condemned by the courts, put in jail for something they did not do. Or maybe a bit closer to home, think about all those times when you had to serve as a judge between two bickering children. The point is, we are finite. And even in our best abilities, we as human beings fall woefully short. We cannot render right and perfect justice because God alone is the perfect judge. As Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 explains, God is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. He is a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. 
This is founded, his perfect justice flows out of his perfect character that he alone possesses. So this is good news for us. It means that we are not called to be judges. If you are suffering a trial of various kind, guess what? You're not called to take justice into your own hands. But you're called to patiently wait on he who owns vengeance. Vengeance belongs not to you. Vengeance belongs to God and God alone. So what do we do when we face trials or injustice or suffering? We wait for the judge to come. We patiently wait for his return. Look again at verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. So we are called to be patient. This is a command. We are called to be patient and to endure, to be long-suffering in our suffering until a certain day. It's not forever, but till a certain day. What day is that? The coming of the Lord. The word coming here literally means presence. And it is used in the New Testament to refer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is the eschaton, the end of all things, when all the promises of God are finally and fully realized. Here, James is referring to future and final salvation for God's people on the day of judgment. In his first coming, you see, Christ came as a suffering servant to pay the penalty for our sins. But at the second coming, Christ will come as the conquering king to judge the world. It is on this final day of Christ's return when all the judgments of verse 1 to 6 will finally be brought to fruition. So when Christ returns, he will bring final, lasting, eternal justice and judgment to all those who reject him and all those who reject his people. But he will bring final salvation for those who believe in him. When he returns at the second coming, in this one act, there will be two results. Judgment for his enemies and salvation for his people. So we are called to wait for that day. It is that day when the vengeance of the Lord will be poured out onto his enemies. We are called to wait for that day when God will make all things that are wrong and he will make them right. All wrongs, all injustices, all sufferings, all hardships will be made right on that final day when God brings true and lasting and eternal justice. But what about us today? What do we do in between these two comings of Christ? These days that we live in are often called the last days. We call it the already but not yet. Christ has come. Christ will come. We have been raised with Christ, but not yet raised bodily. We have been saved from God's wrath, but not yet saved from this present 
evil age. My friends, this is vital for us and our encouragement as Christians. How do you respond when your comforts or your plans are disrupted? Are you quick to remember the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? Are you quick to remember that there's a day when He will make all things right? Or are you quick to take things into your own hands? Many of us in this room face similar circumstances as the brothers in this letter. But let me ask you, why do we find it so hard to obey the commands of James 1 verse 2? To count it joy. To consider it joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. Many of us struggle to endure because we do not have a proper perspective. We do not have a proper mindset. We are living for the things on earth, not for the things in heaven. Our hope is in our present circumstances and not in heaven above. You see, many of us, most of us, if not all of us, reject the prosperity gospel. But how many of us live like it? How many of us idolize our comfort, our possessions, our wants, our desires, our plans, our future? And when there's a a small tweak in the plan, we go nuts. We lose our faith or blame others or blame God. Every time we grumble and complain, every time we are discontent, it reveals our hearts that we are not hoping in that final day, but wanting to establish our own kingdom on earth. Beloved, we must patiently wait. We must endure. We must long for the coming of our Savior. We must turn our gaze away from this present world, away from our circumstances, away from ourselves, and we must turn our eyes to our reigning and ruling King. One day, very soon, He will come. He will come, and He will rescue us and redeem us once and for all. But what does it look like to be patient? We all know that being patient is difficult. Even just coming here, I was fighting my own temptation not to be patient as we were late. So what does it look like? Well, James tells us in verse 7. Look again at verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Our command to wait on the Lord and His coming is like a farmer who waits for his valuable produce. In those days, precious fruit would have been a farmer's livelihood. The harvest literally could be a matter of life and death for his family. So what does the farmer do? He works hard. He plants the seed. He tills the soil. But ultimately, he cannot make the seed produce any fruit. Once he's done all that he can in tilling and planting the seed... What does he do? 
he looks to the heavens and he waits. See, the farmer is utterly, totally dependent on the seasonal rains to water the seed and to grow the fruit. Ultimately, the, Lord, the, the farmer is dependent on the Lord because it is the Lord who causes it to rain. So after the farmer faithfully works the ground, he waits on the Lord. He humbly trusts in the gracious provision of his God. Friends, this is what it looks like to wait on the return of Christ. Like the farmer, there is nothing we can do. He will come when he comes. There's nothing we can do but seek to be faithful in obeying his commands and patiently waiting for his return. We must trust in our gracious king that he will come again. Let's look at verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Brothers and sisters, one of the hardest things to do in life is to be patient, to wait, especially when you're enduring difficulty and trials. And yet God commands you to be patient, to wait on Him, to endure. And the only way that you and I can endure in patience is to establish our hearts. The way that we can continue in patience day after day after day of being mistreated and maligned and persecuted is to establish your hearts in faith. Our endurance and our patience and our trusting the Lord is ultimately a matter of faith. New Testament scholar Douglas Moo explains what it means to establish our hearts. So listen to what he says. This is what it means to establish our hearts. This is a spiritual firmness, a firm adherence to the faith in the midst of temptations and trials. As we wait patiently for the Lord to return, we as believers need to fortify ourselves for the struggle against sin and difficult circumstances. We as believers need to fortify ourselves for the struggle against sin and difficult circumstances. This is a daily resolve to fight the good fight of faith. You think patience is being passive? No, my friends, this is an active work of fighting the good fight of faith. Fighting to really believe that God is good, that God is true, that His Word is trustworthy, that you can trust Him in whatever circumstance that comes your way. This is a daily resolve to fight, to take every thought captive to Christ, to put on the armor of Christ, to stand in the strength of His might, to reject everything that is worldly, to really believe that Christ is coming soon. And in fact, James says that Christ will come soon. That's what he means when he says that the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. He is coming soon. The imminent return of Christ 
is actually the reason we establish our hearts. Do you see that in the text? Look again at verse 8. It says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand or it's near. His imminent return should motivate and empower our endurance. Friends, we must daily turn our spiritual eyes to heaven and hope in His return. This is a heavenly mindedness that is living in light of eternity. This is an expectancy that at any moment our King will come. Do you live that way? Do you live with an expectancy that one day, very soon, maybe even now, Christ will come? This is an expectancy that one day, very soon, very soon, all our suffering, all our pain, and all our sin will be done away forever. There's a day that's coming very soon when the trumpet will sound and Christ will come to rescue his beloved bride. But some of you might be thinking, "Ah, it's been 2,000 years. That doesn't sound soon. Friends, what is your life? You are a mist. You are here today and gone tomorrow. Do not overlook overlook this one fact, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And Jesus himself in Revelation 22 promises that he is coming soon. So the question for us is not to find out the exact date of his return, but the question is do you really believe him? Do you really believe that Jesus is coming soon. So, how do we practically establish our hearts as we wait for the return of Christ? Well, God has given us regular means of grace to encourage our patient endurance in the faith. So, if you want to know how to establish your hearts, if you want to know how to grow in patience, if you want to know how to be growing in your expectancy of Christ's return, let me give you three applications. Number one, we trust in His sure promises. We trust in His sure promises. Living in expectancy and patience, trusting in the Lord is ultimately a matter of faith. We must read His Word every single day. We must let our minds be conformed to what Christ says is true. My friends, if you do not have your face in this book, then your heart will be easily tossed to and fro by the hardships of this life. You need to be reminded by what is really true. We're so prone to see what is seen to see our circumstances and believe that that is more real and more true than what God has said is true. So we need this word to expose our sin and help us to think rightly, to believe rightly, to feel rightly. You need to be reminded every day, for instance, of James 1, 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
You need to remember every morning James 1.12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised. Or you need to remind yourself every single day of 1 Thessalonians 3.13. You must remember that God himself will establish your hearts blameless in holiness at the coming of Christ. When you feel that your faith may fail, you must believe that Christ will keep you enduring to the end. That he is able to keep you from stumbling. He is able to hold you fast until the day he returns. Secondly, we call upon the name of the Lord. In last week's sermon, we saw how the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts, hears our prayers. He is not ignorant of your suffering. There is nothing in this world that is hidden from our God. And when you do not know what to do, we can ask God for wisdom. We can cry out to Him to help us to endure in patience, to help us believe, to help us look to the final resurrection to come. And as we will see next week, prayer is a vital means of grace to help us endure in the faith. Our Father loves to hear the prayers of His saints. He loves to provide us with the strength and endurance we need to trust Him. So pray. Call upon the name of the Lord and ask Him to strengthen your heart. And third, we regularly gather with God's people. This is a third means of grace from God. As Hebrews 10.23 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As we see the day drawing near, knowing that Christ will come, we should be reminded that we are weak, we are prone to wander. We need one another to help us remain accountable. We need the regular ongoing ministry of the saints on Fridays and throughout the week to help us keep going. We need to warn one another of the dangers of sin. And we need to remind one another of the hope of eternal life. We need to encourage one another with the hope of the gospel and his return. That's Christ's return. We need to daily point each other to the glorious hope of our Savior. My friends, we need the ministry of one another. We need one another to point our hearts and our eyes to Jesus Christ, the true shepherd of the sheep, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So friends, when you come on Fridays, come eager to receive encouragement from the saints and to encourage one another with the gospel. Every time we gather on Fridays or on Mondays or in small groups or one-on-one, -on -one, our aim should be to help one another see and believe the glory of Christ, to really take Christ at his word, to take our eyes off our circumstances and to look to our coming king. So first, 
We must be patient. We must patiently wait for the second coming of Christ. And second, we must be ready for his return. We must be ready for his return. And we see this in verse 9 to 12. We see in verse 9 to 12 that we must be ready for the second coming like a bride adorned for her husband. So what does it look like to array ourselves in the fine linen and prepare ourselves for Christ's return? Well, first, we must not grumble. Look at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. The word grumble here can mean to groan or to complain against one another. This is like the Israelites who groaned against Moses in the wilderness and ultimately grumbled against God. It is a constant discontentment that does not trust in God's wisdom. As one author explains, grumbling gives voice to our discontentment. Say that again. Grumbling gives voice to our discontentment and unbelief. We grumble when our faith in God's good purposes falters. Unwilling to trust that God is crafting this disappointment or this suffering for our good, we have eyes only for the painful now. Friends, this is not true in our lives. When our eyes are fixed on our circumstances, are you not tempted to grumble and complain? In fact, grumbling is so common that it is considered the normal response to difficulty. In their book, The Gospel at Work, Greg Gilbert and Sebastian Traeger explain how countercultural it is not to complain at work. He says, complaints, complaints or grumbling, tend to be the common currency of the realm of the workplace. So when someone comes along who doesn't speak complaint as their native tongue, the effect or the witness can be astonishing. So I was talking to a brother about this about a week ago, and he told me that he, he thought it was normal to complain at work. He had never thought about how it is actually sinful to work, to grumble in the workplace. It's because it's so common. I think all of you could attest how common it is for people to grumble and complain against coworkers or bosses or circumstances that seem to be unfair. And now, if this is true at work, how much more should we not grumble against one another? How much more should we not complain against a fellow member in the body of Christ? Brothers and sisters, stop looking to your circumstances and turn your gaze to your sovereign king. When we grumble against one another, now listen to me, when we grumble against one another, we are no different than the unrighteous rich who only think of themselves. That's all grumbling is. It's self-centeredness, self-indulgence, self-conceit. We're not concerned about others. We're only concerned about ourselves. And if you're to be honest, your tendency to grumble exposes your heart and how little you really trust in God and how little we, you think of the coming of Christ. 
how much you live for your present circumstances, how often you build your kingdom now instead of living for Christ's kingdom to come. Now, James warns us. He gives us a warning in verse 9. He says, if we continue in grumbling, we will be judged. Look again at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. The reason that we should not grumble is so that we might not be judged. If you continue in unrepentant grumbling and complaining, James here is warning you that you will suffer final judgment in hell. Yes, we will all give an account as Christians for our words, but in context, it is most natural to understand this as a warning of eschatological judgment. This is why James emphasizes the return of Christ as judge. He says, behold, behold, the judge, Jesus Christ, is standing at the door. This is imagery that Jesus himself used to describe his imminent return. Yes, Jesus will come to rescue and redeem his saints, but we must be ready for his coming. We must be found faithful when he returns. We must be like the ten virgins or the servants who stayed awake, ready for his arrival. My friends, this is a call to continue in faithful endurance and holiness. This is a call to not grumble and complain, but to trust in your sovereign king. Brothers and sisters, do you want to know if you will be saved on that last day? Well, James tells us to examine your words. Examine your words. Every time you grumble, every single time you grumble or complain, you are exposing your lack of trust in God. And if you continue in grumbling, you will receive the full punishment of God's wrath. Beloved, warnings are God's grace. They are a means for us to endure in faith. You see, warnings, like this warning here, exposes our sin, and it calls us to keep walking in obedience to Christ. So, if you find yourself right now, or later this week, grumbling against your boss, or complaining about your spouse, or groaning about your children's disobedience, or grumbling about others member, other members of this congregation, repent. Turn away of your worldly thinking and put on the mind of Christ. Remember his patient endurance through the anguish of the cross. Jesus Christ never grumbled or complained in his heart or with his mouth, even as he was suffering unthinkable anguish on the cross. Not only physical anguish, but bearing the full punishment of God's wrath for our sin. He did not complain. He did not grumble. But he wholly, wholeheartedly entrusted himself to God. So if you find yourself tempted to grumble, repent and trust in his righteous work.
His righteousness. His endurance through suffering. Remember His patience towards your sin as you strive to be patient with one another. Now as we think about getting ready or being prepared for the coming of Christ, James now gives us two illustrations or examples to follow. Look at verse 10. As examples of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. So James turns our attention to the prophets of the Old Testament as an example. These are an example for us to follow. These prophets did not grumble in their suffering, but they entrusted themselves to God. They patiently endured as they looked to the coming reward. Now, prophets were commanded by God in the Old Covenant to speak the word of the Lord. Now, often their obedience, it was actually their obedience to speak the name of the Lord or to speak the word of the Lord that led to their persecution, that led to their suffering, that led to their hardship. Think about the prophet Jeremiah, who spoke the name of the Lord and warned Israel to repent of their sins. Jeremiah spoke the word of the Lord, and he was persecuted for it. He was beaten. He was imprisoned. He was thrown in a well and left for dead, all because he refused to stop preaching the word. Now, prophets like Jeremiah had two choices either obey the edicts of men and live in peace, or obey the word of God no matter the cost. They had two choices, obey the edicts of men and live in peace, or obey the word of God no matter the cost. Now friends, we also have those same two choices. We can either live for the safety of our brief lives on earth, or we can live for the eternal security of heaven. Brothers and sisters, one of the ways we adorn ourselves and prepare for the coming of Christ is to boldly proclaim the gospel no matter the cost. One of the ways we prepare ourselves for the coming of Christ and adorn ourselves is by boldly proclaiming the gospel no matter the cost. For instance, think about all those hard relationships with unbelieving coworkers or family members. Think about the person who persecutes you or mistreats you the harshest. If your boss is treating you harshly that day, then you remember James 5, that you're called not to grumble and complain, but to trust in the coming of Christ. And then you begin to pray for them. And then you start seeing this hard relationship, not in light of your present circumstances, but in light of the coming judgment of Christ. And you actually remember and think about how their mistreatment of you is a reminder of their eternal state. They are like the rich in verse 1 to 6. And if they died at this moment, they will spend an eternity in hell. 
So yes, the final judgment is a comfort for us in our suffering, but it also should move us to graciously and boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. It should move us to compassion and mercy to those who receive the final judgment of God. We should follow the example of Paul who said in 2 Timothy 2.10, I endure everything, everything, slander, mistreatment, imprisonment, and even death for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Beloved, we can endure all things. We can preach the gospel with humility, with patience and boldness in our workplaces or in our family relationships, no matter the cost, because we know that we will be blessed if we remain steadfast in our suffering. That's what James says. We consider those blessed who remain steadfast you will receive the reward of heaven when Christ returns. So stop thinking about yourselves. Start thinking about others. Be faithful to proclaim the gospel wherever you go, no matter the costs. Do not live for your present security and safety and kingdom on earth, but live for his kingdom to come. Or think about the example of Job. So James gives us a second example, the example of Job. Look at verse 11. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, remember, God permitted Satan to inflict Job with unimaginable suffering. And one day, Job lost all his wealth, all his livelihood, and all of his children. Yet Job did not abandon the Lord, but remained steadfast in faith. As we see in James, uh, Job 1.20, when he heard the news, Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now, we see throughout the rest of Job that he did wrestle to understand his suffering, but he never lost faith in God. At the end of Job's life, God restored the fortunes of Job and blessed his latter days more than his beginning. So here, James uses Job as an illustration to remind us of God's compassion and mercy towards us in our suffering. No, God might not restore our fortunes. He might not relieve our suffering on this side of eternity. But guess what, my friends? One day he will, guaranteed. Because of the finished work of Christ, every good you receive and every sorrow you endure is a gracious gift from our Father. Our God is working all things, all things including your ongoing suffering and trials for our eternal good. 
Our God is storing up all the riches of his mercy and compassion, which one day he will lavish upon us for all eternity. And when Christ returns, God himself will pour out the full measure of blessing upon us. My friends, you might not be restored in the way Job was temporally on earth, but there's a far greater coming riches for everyone who repents of their sins and trusts in Christ. There's a far better treasure, an inheritance that you will receive. Beloved, God has ordained your trials to test your faith like Job, to sanctify you of your sin. And to prepare you for heaven. He is preparing you to receive eternal riches for all of eternity. Weeping may tarry for the night. But my friends, joy comes with the morning of Christ's return. Finally, James concludes this section as he began in verse 9. Look at verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Just like verse 9, James concludes with a negative command. So verse 9, we saw, do not grumble so that you may not be judged. And here in verse 12, he says, do not swear so that you may not fall under condemnation. You see the parallel? James here is summarizing all that he has said so far and is calling us to lives of truthfulness. So when he uses his phrase, above all, he's emphasizing the seriousness for us to be truthful, to be truth-tellers, to live consistently with our profession of faith. This is why James commands us not to swear. He's not forbidding oaths in general, but he's talking about our witness as believers. You do not need to swear by heaven or by earth or by any oath to tell the truth. In Christ, we should be truth-tellers. Now, maybe here in in, uh, the letter, he's referring to some who are making oaths that they never intended to keep. Or maybe others are responding quickly with a yes or no out of their fear of man. Maybe some are flip-flopping between yes and no, depending on what serves them the most. Maybe they want to impress a certain person or gain a certain advantage. But regardless, the main point remains the same. We should be truthful. We should tell the truth. James is not forbidding us to change our plans as far as it depends on us. But he is telling us that our yes should be yes and our no should be no, even if it costs us. This is what it means to love others, to prefer one another above ourselves. So let me ask you, when you say yes or no to someone, do you really mean it? Or are you like the double-minded man who says yes one day and no the next based on how you feel? Beloved, you must remember that liars, those who do not tell the truth, will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you do not tell the truth, if your life is not consistent with the truth, if you are not reliable, if people cannot trust you, 
If you continue in your lies and deceit, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. As Jesus explains in Matthew 12, 36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Friends, if you continue in a pattern of deceit, you will fall under condemnation when Christ returns. Friends, now if you are not a Christian, we want you to know that we are glad that you are here. But I need to warn you as we conclude that the coming of Christ will not be a day of comfort for you, but will actually be the worst day of your life. There is no amount of suffering that can pair with the weight of God's judgment to come. In his first coming, Jesus Christ came as the slaughtered lamb, but when he returns, he will do all the slaughtering. He will execute the winepress of God's wrath upon everyone who rejects him as Savior who continues in their rebellion and sin. If you reject Christ, this side of eternity, he will reject you, and he will throw you into the eternal flames of fire that burns with sulfur for all eternity. Friends, the reason that Jesus Christ has not returned now is out of his patience and kindness towards you. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise But he's patient towards you. He's not wishing that any should perish. But he's wishing that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Friends, not tomorrow. You're not guaranteed another day. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus Christ has offered his blameless life as a substitute on the cross for your sin. He died on the cross. He bore the wrath that you deserve. He conquered, rising from the dead. And now he freely offers to you free forgiveness and eternal life. He wants you to come to him. Turn from your sin today. Repent And trust in the finished work of Christ. It's only at the cross where you can find hope and blessing of his return. Now, beloved saints, our salvation was secured at the cross. And our final salvation is coming very, very soon. Let the coming blessing of Christ motivate your patient endurance through the trials of various kinds. For everyone who patiently endures to the end, you will receive the blessing of Christ's return. He will come again to usher in all the blessings of heaven that are being stored in heaven for you. My friends, when Christ returns, he will make all things right. He will give you himself. He will give you the blessing of himself. This is the blessing of knowing Christ as our Savior. This is the blessing of not knowing eternal judgment, but eternal life. This is the blessing of his righteousness, which he adorns with us as his beloved bride. This is the blessing of his forgiveness, the payment of your sins, and the cleansing of your iniquity. 
This is the blessing of his resurrection, the final victory over sin and death. This is the blessing of his presence that is poured into your hearts through the Spirit. This is the blessing of adoption as sons and daughters. This is the blessing of his inheritance that one day we will reign with him forever. This is the blessing of his protection that we will be eternally secure forever. This is the blessing of his healing when all our aches and pains give way to new resurrection bodies. This is the blessing of his comfort when he will wipe away every tear. This is the blessing of his joy that we will enjoy in his presence forever. This is the blessing of his mercy that he will lavish on us. This is the blessing of his holiness by which we can see God face to face. This is the blessing of his glory that he will share with us in heaven. And this is the blessing of hearing those most precious words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. This is the blessing of Christ that he will bring you when Christ returns. Oh, my friends, trust in that day. Turn your eyes to that day. Look to the coming of your Savior. Friends, it is vanity to try and trick your heart that all is well. But in the midst of the most unthinkable suffering, you can say with confidence, in light of all these eternal rewards, it is well with my soul. Christ has borne my sin and my sorrow. Christ has overcome the grave, and Christ will one day return to bring me home. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, and the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, my friends, beloved saints of grace, it is well with my soul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we marvel at your amazing mercy and grace. Lord, we deserve the full measure of your wrath when Christ returns. But we thank you and we praise you for Jesus Christ who bore our sins on that tree. We thank you for the hope of his resurrection and the hope of his return for everyone who trusts him. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to live in light of that day, that you'd help us to be ready and expectant for that day, and that you would help us to live by faith and not by sight. We pray this all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.